Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the west of the world. The west of the world? The whole world. Maybe I can't pronounce my R's. I've been doing too many impersonations of Roy Jenkins. Anyway, look, thank you so much. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. In a moment, if it's okay with all of you, uh, I'm going to reflect on what's been happening at the Edinburgh Festival from my perspective, very narrow perspective. It seems as if the whole world's here. And uh, then some brilliant questions from you on a whole range of topics. So, yeah, what a lot to cram in. Uh, Before that, just a reminder, I'm here. I'm doing this podcast from Edinburgh. Performances all this coming week until the last one's on Saturday that bank holiday weekend, Saturday. So hope to see you there. Then going down to the brilliant, legendary Beyond Borders Festival, which is a Traquair house on the borders. Um, just a unique and wonderful uh, festival. Busy, busy times with so much going on. And no doubt for all of you, unless you're on holiday and listening to this on a beach, I don't usually get emails from people saying, oh, I'm listening to your podcast on a beach, doing bugger all but listening. It's usually walking, running, rowing, cooking, you know, the sort of thing. The link to get tickets for that those shows, different one every day, I'll be talking about them in a minute anyway, uh, will be with the blurb for this podcast. And then, for those of you not here, and those of you here, live at King's Place on September the 9th, the start of the Liz Truss era special. Monday, September the 19th, she'll have been Prime Minister for two weeks. And by the way, if uh, she's not Prime Minister, it will become something else, the start of the Rishi Sunak era special. But I think we're into that. So she'll have been in power for two weeks. We've got to get together to make sense of it all that night. So you can get the tickets for that on the King's Place website, which is also uh, going to, the link will be on the blurb for this podcast. Yeah, so I'm in Edinburgh and it has been interesting on many different levels. First of all, it's been great to meet more listeners of the podcast. You know, we're all part of this cooperative, this uh, community, and it's sort of great to meet in in real life and you know the spell is not uh, broken by doing so you know sometimes when you meet up with people who you only kind of know from a certain distance you think oh right now I've met them it sort of oh yeah it doesn't work well not like that at all had a great conversation with one of the uh, uh, regular emailers uh, we met for coffee uh, Nick Radcliffe who lives in uh, Edinburgh he's a professor very modestly, I don't think has put that on any of the emails he sent to all of us with various thoughts and propositions. And he got me really thinking because he said something which I hadn't really consciously thought about. He said that, and he said very politely, by the way, great, it was a very friendly uh, couple of cups of coffee. And then Nick hobbled along to the show because he had fallen down the day before on two stairs and somehow slipping on two stairs you know he had injured everything and he was sober when it happened but anyway he said I notice you don't choose climate change as a 
topic, you know, this kind of all stuff about economics and the build-up to the electoral reform special and analysing politics via the various leaders and all the rest of it, Scotland or the UK and its future, but not climate change. And yeah, it, it, I hadn't sort of, it's not a conscious omission, but it's quite revealing. So, um, and we talked about it for a long time. And it was, you know, saying how urgent it is, this meteor is heading towards us. And if it was a meteor, we'd all be doing stuff in a panic to make sure it didn't hit us. Um, but because it's not as vivid as that, it is somehow uh, less tangible, but as equally threatening as a meteor heading towards us. I think the reason, well, the reason I gave, I mean, I, you know, I, I had coffee with Nick for half an hour. I'm now having 20 therapy sessions to try and work out why subconsciously I hadn't done climate change as a theme on the podcast. It comes up in emails and from all of you, although Nick says, when there is a reference to climate change, I answer another part of the email. Maybe on some mad level, I'm with Nigel Lawson and denying the whole thing. But it's not that. It's uh, my kind of reasoning is that, um, you know, you have to really speak about and engage with others in areas where you feel some degree of expertise, you know, for it to be authentic and some uh, sense of having every now and again uh, the space to make distinctive observations which aren't being made in the rest of the media. And I suppose I just don't feel qualified to do that about climate change. But then we got talking a bit more. I then said, yeah, there are ways I could do it about the great clash between the short-term demands of politics compared with the uh, almost contradictory notion of the urgency of addressing long-term issues. The classic one which we explored was this autumn where the fear of astronomically high fuel bills is leading to screams for great subsidies so we can carry on heating our homes in a way that contributes to the pressures on climate change. So what does a government or an opposition do? It cannot say, uh, we, you know, we're going to uh, uh, do things in such a way, let the prices rise, let the market solve this, so you all freeze, even though that would be a way of doing the climate change thing. So, so the short term and the long term are often in collision. And I think that's an interesting theme. But he was saying we're already in, Nick was saying, this 10-year uh, period where urgent action is required. And then we explored some of the interesting and exciting ways in which um, parties could address climate change more boldly in the UK. He was telling me that Paris now is becoming pedestrianized and uh, so bike-friendly as one example of an intervention which is radical, in the end user-friendly, and is climate change-friendly too. And other cities have done the same some for, for decades. And we were looking at areas where the action will lead to economic growth, higher quality of life in the short term as well as addressing the longer-term problem. Anyway, so that got me uh, thinking. By the way, not many of you write in and say, why don't you do more on climate change? Maybe we're all in that state of mind where we know it's urgently horrendous uh, what's happening. And this summer, again, very vivid and close to home examples of that. But we are 
well, a lot of you exercised by electoral reform. And we talked about that. Nick's pro-electoral reform. And I said, well, how, you know, with all these challenges and climate change, you really want to get into electoral reform? But anyway, we discussed. That was only over half an hour coffee. It's great uh, to meet Joe Ruffles, who um, has flown in from Berlin. Not just for these shows. Well, I like to think it's just for these shows. And uh, yeah, the great legendary now, Stuart Grant, who presented me as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost. By the way, before I come on to Stuart, Lord Frosty Frost um, is now pushing it, don't you think? He's published an essay in recent days, uh, the most pretentious, untested twaddle about the need to shrink the state, thereby getting the benefits of Brexit. No examples of what public services he would diminish uh, further in order to do this. It's a pamphlet. Frosty's always writing pamphlets now. Um, He gave up with negotiating Brexit. So now, in the safety of his boudoir, he writes pamphlets. You know, it is so utterly bizarre this period we are living through where frosty lauded for doing so oh yeah what insight trust should make him her chief of staff trust got a, what oh, what an asset frosty will be for trust shrink the state at a moment when levers need to be pulled like never before to deal with the crisis in the nhs to deal with you know this is a really interesting one the sewage being pumped into the sea a sort of metaphor for the britain we're in at the moment is an example of light regulation and yet both tory candidates in the leadership contest are going around pledging a burning of regulatory uh, frameworks uh, setting people free from regulation regulation is a protection And the problem with water, I don't know if you heard the head of off uh, off what, so many of these off, off germ, off what, off what, he's the water one, uh, the regulator of the water companies. And as even a column in the Daily Telegraph acknowledged, he sounded like a representative of the water companies. Don't look to him, this off what character, to regulate in a way that helps the user and you know, this term regulation has become a sinister one, and yet it can be protective and liberating. Uh, but anyway, Lord Frosty Frost, shrink the state, get burned, bonfire of regulations, and say so they never specify, they never explore. But I sense we're going to enter an era where the demands on the state will grow, and trusts will have to respond to that. Uh, even though she is with Frosty theoretically. A lot of Tories throughout these years have wanted a small state in theory, but when in practice it comes to cuts which will affect their constituents, they suddenly discover an appetite for a bigger state. And for Frosty, he has no constituents. He's never stood in front of the electorate. Anyway, yeah, well, Stuart, as I'm sure I reported at the time on uh, on here, came to the last show at King's Place and presented me with the Union Jack socks as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost, who wore those Union Jack socks to intimidate his EU counterparts when he negotiated his triumphant deal. 
Well, Stuart's been up uh, here in Edinburgh to present me with the saltire socks, the equivalent for Scotland. You know, I'm sure Frosty, he's written an article this week, he's everywhere, Frosty, calling for uh, the SMB to be taken on to be taken on, you know, muscularity. I'm sure if uh, Frosty is given that task by Truss, he will come up here with his saltire socks. Well, I've got pairs now from Stuart. I can exclusively reveal. Reveal. So it's been great. Yes, Stuart's been up. Uh, Joe Ruffles and many of you I've talked to fleetingly when signing books and things at the end of the show who are part of the Rock and Roll Politics uh, Cooperative. So that's been great. And in a way... It shows that this sort of modern uh, media uh, that we are all navigating has some great benefits. Uh, Podcasts, uh, I think, a very intimate form of communication. And so are live shows. Now, live shows are a bit of an old-fashioned thing, you know, in this sort of high-tech era where everyone communicates alone at home in an office, um, you know, Twitter and emails and so on. But the live show is a real direct form of engagement. And, you know, I, I, politicians are going back onto the stage again. There was a phase when, you know, that, that old-fashioned political rally faded um, in the early to mid-1990s. And politicians focused on the uh, interview in a broadcasting studio, uh, the soundbite for the TV news bulletins. And then it was, you know, Twitter and Facebook. But I've noticed there have been tons of politicians speaking on the stage as well in Edinburgh. And actually, quite often, what they do is they speak live. And then that becomes a podcast, too. And those who have been up here have been sort of, you know, uh, well, they live here, (laughs) a lot of them, but not all, of course. You know, Gordon Brown, who lives here, Nicholas Sturgeon is a ubiquitous uh, figure on the uh, fringe and indeed at that Beyond Borders festival I mentioned at the beginning. Um, And it is really interesting. Keir Starmer was here, I think his first engagement when he returned from his deserved holiday, not... Uh, a controversial holiday, uh, was here in Edinburgh. And in all these events, and, and my shows as well, they've been well attended with really engaged audiences. I went to one where Nicholas Sturgeon was on a panel with um, that uh, Tory-supporting comedian Jeff Northcott and Rosie Holt, the, the figure who has become, you know, she's risen through social media. Her tweets with videos of this bemused, bewildered Tory MP has turned has got her a huge following. Anyway, Nicola Sturgeon was on a panel with them, and it's very interesting watching Nicola Sturgeon in public because unquestionably she was there with a sympathetic audience. You know, people wouldn't buy tickets if they uh, didn't want to see her, but she can work a room, and you become very conscious in Edinburgh where there are so many live performances. And I watch them with fascination, even the bad ones, because she can hold an audience. Um, And by the way, um, another listener can do that. I'll come back to Nicola in a moment. This is the great thrill of the podcast again. Rob Ward uh, is a listener to the podcast, and um, he got in touch with me when I got here to say he has a show on. Uh, so he came to my show 
and then I went to his, and it's an it, it's an extraordinary performance. It, he's on the stage alone for an hour. Now I am, but I have the audience as my co-host uh, for the hour I do. Uh, his was a performance of real textured class, and it was brilliant to watch. And he can hold an audience, Rob, but I mean, he's a trained actor. Some can't. You know, you go to some stand-up shows and you wonder why they're doing it, because they can't work a room. And it applies to politicians too. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon can. So, for example, when she was on this panel, it was chaired by Aisha Hazarika. And it began with Jeff Northcott and Rosie Holt, and they were sort of, there was a lot of, and Aisha actually, you know, fucking this, fucking that. And you could see Nicola Sturgeon sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing on this panel? This seems like kind of a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, but uh, she soon turned it round. And I could see her winning the room, and indeed the panel, when Aisha said at one point, well, you know, what a time we're living through. And she listed the things that we all explore on here, you know, uh, the pandemic, Brexit, the financial crash of 2008. And then she added, uh, and the potential breakup of the United Kingdom. And at that point, Nicola Sturgeon looked up and held her thumb, thumb aloft to the audience, like a sort of mischievous schoolgirl. And they all responded, including, you know, some of those who clearly were not in favour of the breakup of the United Kingdom. And it was a bit of fun. And then she said, you're all using the F word. You know, I can't use the F word, or else it'd be a news story. And I noticed they all stopped using it. She can work a room. And it's interesting because when she started out in politics, she was quite sort of awkward and shy. I suspect privately she is quite shy uh, in some ways, um, but she's learnt it. Gerald Kaufman, you know, the late Labour MP who worked with Wilson in the 60s, once told me Harold Wilson learnt to have a sense of humour. And he used it brilliantly. He was like, it was like watching a stand-up comic, Wilson at his peak. Nicola can work a room, and she is formidable in that respect. There are quite a few others here who um, can do that. I mean, I went to see Keir Starmer when he did come back from his deserved holiday, and he was being interviewed by Ian Dale. Again, it was well attended with the entire Edinburgh uh, Labour Party because it was it, he got a rapturous reception reception here when he came on and he was fine but he didn't quite hold the room in a way that Nicholas Sturgeon can do maybe you can learn to hold a room the leader of the Scottish Labour Party Anasawa has been around a lot he can work hold a room it is an important skill it's not the only skill of leadership but to cast that spell is it is something of a skill and it's in politics is partly performance and obviously stand up which is a dominant theme at the edinburgh festival is all about performance and some can do it and some can't as in politics but the overall impression i have got is this sort of intense appetite related to a bewilderment 
about making sense of politics at the moment. People uh, who have followed politics all their lives genuinely are worried, alarmed, and also, as I say, bewildered by the state of politics and are curious. And although those uh, leaders who portray great self-confidence can trigger huge doting cheers this is a time when people almost like to have heroes to follow uh, in politics there is I think as much bewildered curiosity as certainty about the routes to follow Um, and I was up here when uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak did their uh, Scottish uh, hustings in, I think, Perth they were. And again, you felt, as it's been a theme, hasn't it, with all of us on this podcast, they were just in a different world, actually, Um, uh, cocooned in a leadership contest targeting these tiny number of members. But out here in Edinburgh... um, you know, it, of course, it's a bubble, the Edinburgh Festival, but it's you can learn things from bubbles. As long as you know you're in a bubble, it's still quite illuminating. Anyway, it's been intense, fun, fulfilling, and yeah, there's another week to go. So come on and join us in the bubble. And if not, hopefully see you on September the 19th at King's Place. And now, if it's okay with all of you, We've got some brilliant questions, so let's get going. First of all, from uh, Jimmy Smallwood. Jimmy says, hello, Steve. Love the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. And listen every week from the Red Wall Bastion of Bolton, Greater Manchester. Here's a fun game to play. It's the summer. Let's play Jimmy's game. Here are four quotes. Quote one. Let's face it, work ethic is not one of the characteristics of this country. Quote two. British workers need more graft and lack the skill and application of their foreign counterparts. Quote three. Once they enter the workplace, the British are amongst the worst idlers of the world. Quote four. Immigrants are absolutely immersed with the work ethic. Two of these quotes are attributed to Liz Truss, who said the other two. That's right. Steve Richards in a recent Rock and Roll Politics podcast. Is this an example of where your views and mistrusts align or not? And would you stand by your remarks? as it feels somewhat tone deaf at a time when millions are working their socks off to try and survive the cost of living uh, crisis. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Jim. I'm pleased you said you love the podcast uh, because you have me down as perhaps the most committed supporter of uh, Liz Truss. Yeah, what did I say of those two? Work ethic is not one of the characteristics of this country. Well, Jimmy... Uh, how do I say this? I, I I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Now, that isn't to say some people have to work appallingly long hours with appallingly low pay. That's a slightly different thing. But I was aware in that ancient history period when um, Eastern Europeans came over uh, pre-Brexit of this kind of almost instinctive 
uh, work ethic, you know, the long hours they put in. Now, I say, you know, you, you're right. You've got, you, you've, I'm basically, you're listening to a podcast from the biggest worshipper at the altar of Liz Truss. No, it's a good part. I'm going to have to reflect on this, Jimmy, because um, I, some, you know, this isn't scripted. So it's like this climate change thing. You're all uncovering dark layers here. Liz Truss, if you're listening, I'm available to share the job of um, uh, Chief of Staff with Lord Frosty Frost. Thank you for getting me thinking. Now, Noah Keat always gets us all thinking. Uh, Dear Steve, hope you're having a great time in Edinburgh. Thank you, Noah. Uh, It really is uh, one of the best cities in the UK. I think it's one of the best cities in Europe, uh, if not the world, Noah. I'm writing to ask about Michael Goh's decision to endorse Rishi Sunak and his presumed retreat from frontline politics. Numerous journalists have praised Gove as a radical reforming minister who was, whether you agree with him or not, able to get things done. While I share this praise as a member of the Rock and Roll Politics Michael Gove fan club, oh, well, Noah, thanks for standing that. I think the number of members uh, might be as low as the uh, one that Jimmy, uh, Jimmy says I should start up, which is the Liz Truss uh, fan club. But I can't help wondering whether part of this uh, prey lavishing of uh, laudatory lavishing of Gove is because he was able to make a leap from journalism to politics. Yeah, I think I think that is a factor. And similarly with Boris Johnson, they're two different people, and, and Gove is more substantial than Johnson. But um, they came from journalism, had friends in uh, powerful places in the newspapers that they worked for, and I think that has at times given them um, a, a softer media than those who uh, the political journalists, the editors of papers, regard as more distant figures who they can knock about. It's quite hard for, say, the editor of The Times to target Michael Gove or the columnists when Michael Gove was one of their uh, columnists. That's not to say he's not an interesting figure. I find him interesting and personally uh, like him. But um, I think that, for example, his time in uh, education needs far more scrutiny than just say he was a great reforming uh, minister. And at his other departments, he wasn't there for very long. He kept on being moved on or or removed uh, from various cabinets. But it is interesting if this is it for him. And I wonder whether he'll go back in to the media, perhaps while keeping his seat. Uh, thank you, uh, Noah. Over now to one of our great Brussels correspondents, Caroline Morgan, who uh, uh, lives in Brussels and sometimes in London as well. Hello, Stephen, all the rock and rollers, especially those lucky enough to be in Edinburgh. Yeah, a lot of us are here, Caroline. Some of us are lucky enough, not me, to live here. But anyway, uh, enjoying the uh, podcast. Oh, thank you uh, very much. She notes that the various crises that we focus on, often through the prism of the Tory leadership contest, cost of living, energy, housing, transport, health service, postal services. We have none of these, and it's all fine and sunny in sunny Brussels. Uh, Surely you got some of these, Caroline, uh, in sunny Brussels. Anyway, my question uh, is this. Who do you think Starmer would like to see become the next Prime Minister? Is Truss preferable, because she's slower, muddle-headed, strange, and comes across as a bit dim, or would Sunak be a better opponent in a general election? Well, I don't know which one Keir Starmer would prefer. I haven't asked him. If I were a Tory MP, actually, God, this is going to confirm what uh, Jimmy has suggested, um, I would vote for Truss. 
I think Rishi Sunak would be an easier opponent for Keir Starmer for various reasons. And Truss will have the doting support of the Sun, the Express and the Mail, which so protected Boris Johnson and so influences the tone of BBC coverage. Her clever positioning as a change maker challenging economic orthodoxies, although accompanied by utterly reckless kind of half-formed policy ideas. Again, the positioning of breaking through the sort of failed years of austerity, treasury orthodoxy and so on, is, I think, a more challenging position for Keir Starmer with his uh, tendency to let extreme caution prevail and slightly misread the 1994-97 New Labour period could be presented with difficulties. Now, I think he too recognises the centrality of being a change maker at the next election. So it's going to be interesting. But that's what I think. It's, so, But what do I know, uh, Caroline, what he thinks, if you know what I mean? Oh, Caroline also is say from Brussels, you know, immersed, I mustn't use that word immersed, having used it about the work ethic of uh, those from Eastern Europe used to come here uh, before, you know, we put the barriers up. Anyway, Caroline says, I know many were disappointed to hear Keir Starmer say it wasn't Labour Party policy to rejoin the single market or the customs union. From the EU's point of view, I don't think anyone wants the UK back for now. Anyway, Starmer is said to be having behind-the-scenes meetings with key EU leaders. He'll be keeping in touch and trying to mend fences for now. A better relationship with the EU, which he has said he wants, is first of all persuading the EU to have us back one day, a long time in the future. Um, yeah, that's so that's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, by the way, we had a poll here on one of the days. I asked the audience to predict whether the UK would be back in the European Union within 20 years. And it was it was a 52-48 divide, I think 52 in favour. But then it got complicated because some argued there would be no UK in 20 years. Some argued we should have a vote on uh, whether we would be back in the single market within that period of time. See what these shows are like. And we were having votes. We had to cancel all the other shows that day. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, Caroline. Keep us in touch on all fronts. Adrian Lyons has been in touch to say, took the Euro tunnel train from Calais to Folkestone yesterday. Having passed French passport control, it took another 45 minutes to get through the UK passport control, sitting in the blazing heat of the concourse. Yeah, France, it took 10 minutes, so the horrible experience of passport control is not the fault of the French. Yeah, thank you, Adrian. I wonder where the fault lies. Brexit consequences. Anyway, thank you very much, Adrian, and for your other points, which I've emailed you about. Uh, Richard Frame writes, This week my wife and I listened to you in the car with a grand view near Woodingdean of the wind farm in the sea opposite Brighton. Well, I would normally say, Richard, I hope you stop for a swim in the sea in Brighton. We go swimming in Brighton. Probably not in the light of news of all this kind of... Uh, sewage via the water companies. Uh, just seen a piece in The Guardian by Andy Beckett, and it got me thinking about the current state in which we find ourselves. I'm not sure this is helpful, but to me it feels more like 78-79. Thatcher, as leader of the opposition, was yet to have wider appeal. She faced a tired old government, industrial action, inflation. Britain was need, in need of fresh insights into the future. Yet, if my memory serves me correctly, the, le the electorate were not convinced about Thatcher, or not entirely so. 
Yeah, that is a good parallel. They weren't. There was still an expectation, even though the Tories were well ahead uh, when Jim Callaghan was forced to call the 1979 election, he lost a vote of confidence. Quite a few columnists wrote that Thatcher probably wouldn't do it. It would be much closer than the polls suggested, but she did do it. And it was partly a rejection of the chaos that people had endured in the so-called winter of discontent. I think the chaos now in the UK, in its range and depth, is much worse than the winter of discontent. And with no government even trying to get a grip on it, uh, that knackered Labour government in 79 uh, at least were trying to get a grip on it, not very successfully. Nick Bennett writes, uh, thank you for the entertaining and interesting podcasts. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm prompted to reply to you, oh yeah, there's a bit of debate coming up here. Electoral reform, da 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 I'm prompted to reply to your correspondent who argued that first past the post was responsible for Brexit. This is absolutely the wrong way round. PR begat Brexit. The main consequence of Blair's introduction of PR for the European Parliament in 1999 was to give UKIP a foothold in elected politics with three MEPs, money, media recognition. If PR had been in force at Westminster, there would undoubtedly have been at least 30 UKIP MPs. Yeah, so there we are. Nick uh, puts the case against electoral reform. But then, uh, so does Laundry Joe, by the way. Brexit happened precisely because of electoral reform and because European elections were not first past the post. But then Venetia Kane writes, in your previous podcast, the question was asked, how did the Tory Bacardi become Brexit, the Brexit party? My instinctive reaction was first past the post. But I had some difficulty in making the logical links to what, uh, from one to the other. But I was pleased to hear one of your correspondents saying the same thing. So I've tried again to reconstruct my instant thought process. It was something about the ERG, the European Reform Group, holding the balance of power in the Brexit deal machinations. But I still can't elaborate on it other than to say Johnson, uh, once he got in, was able to kick out or not recruit anyone who would not sign up to a hard Brexit. What I can say is that without first past the post, Johnson would not have got his 80-strong majority. So there we are. The correspondent last week who said PR might have stopped Brexit, challenged by two listeners, but uh, Venetia is absolutely on that person's side. Your correspondent demolished beautifully the fear of coalition argument. Oh yeah, that's another that was another email. Anyway, on it goes, on it goes, the electoral reform. Yeah, that's special. Uh, quite a few people in Edinburgh say, well, oh, when are we going to get that special? Soon, soon. Tom Butner writes, Hi Steve, I'm listening to the podcast while sat in my parents' garden, enjoying the sunshine and hearing the birds fluttering in the trees and bathing in the bird bath. Are you bathing in the bird bath, Tom? Or, the, or, or I hope it's the birds fluttering and bathing in the bird bath. Well, what a romantic image as you sit there uh, listening and uh, engaging and writing uh, and taking part. What do you make of the poll of Conservative Party members who would still have Boris as Prime Minister? I don't know the exact figures, but I believe it's more than half. What does this say about the party and their attitude towards standards in public life? Yeah, it's it's wacky. You know, they, they get rid of uh, a 
leader. And then if he were to stand in the contest, he would win it. It's all part of the silliness. But I think it's more to do with the fact in the modern Tory parliamentary party, including the membership and some MPs, they need heroes and reason doesn't come into it. Uh, it's it's to do with the, the, Margaret Thatcher changed the party and they worshipped her. And when regicide happened and she fell, they worshipped her even more. Then they worshipped Michael Portillo because they thought he was an extension of her. So did she, by the way, for a time. And then when he let them down, well, now they've got... Boris Johnson as a martyr and the figure that got I've got Brexit done. Blah, blah, blah. So they it's the need for heroes and it's 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 weird. Thank you very much. Uh, Keith of Finchley says, I found the most important news last week, the announcement that the Prime Minister, Home Secretary, and the then Cabinet received a full and condemnatory report from their appointed advisor on the dire state of human rights in Rwanda. They ignored it and lied to the country. I watched BBC, ITV and Channel 4 News that night. No mention. Yeah, well, you, I, I, I have in our bubble here, I haven't had time to watch these news bulletins. But the fact is the Rwanda policy really was part of uh, Operation Save Big Dog. You know, it was part of number 10. What do we do to appease Conservative MPs and protect Boris Johnson in number 10? And all these populist initiatives were thrown out of which this was one and um, given the cost of it and its effectiveness just on those grounds alone before you get into the uh, uh, nature of the regime in Rwanda I wonder whether it will uh, ever materialise in any extensive form uh, even old trust there you know who will have to feed all kinds of populist, populist initiatives to divert attention from the dire state of the economy which would uh, state that would deepen with her some of her policies when she uh, implements them i wonder how long it will go but i think it was much more uh number 10 saying right what get me red meat get me uh, yeah, uh, get, uh, i don't think johnson believed it he was he announced when he was london mayor a kind of uh, he or he wanted to uh allow far more immigrants to stay in London or something. I can't remember. There was something he was planning. Um, uh, he wasn't wholly at ease with it, but he would, do, he would of course, do anything to protect his uh, tenure, but failed to do so for now. No, no, I think it's forever, but that's for another podcast. And finally, uh, Sue writes, sorry, sir, I haven't got your surname on this um, email uh, version I've got. Oh, Sue kindly asks, uh, uh, you mentioned we can make reviews on the co- podcast, which I really enjoy. Oh, thank you. But where do we do that, please? Oh, it depends where you are listening, Sue. Um, on these iPhones, there's a there's a place, you know, where you listen to podcasts where it says leave a review and you put these stars and you can write a review. Uh, so it'd be great if you could do it. And I know on all outlets, there are that possibility. There is that possibility. But I, I can't advise on the others because I do it on a uh, an iPhone. Um, but it'd be great if you could, because apparently that makes us lot more available out there in the wild world of everything. And actually, oh, yeah, Sue says, I often listen while cooking or ironing. Yeah, that's a good that's a good combination, I think. It's a kind of comforting mix of the mad political world and dinner or a neatly ironed garment uh emerges yeah yeah i can see that and she adds what a time of political strangeness isn't it isn't it 
brilliant way of putting it. This is a time of such political strangeness. And say we're exploring the ideas in Edinburgh, but when we all kind of return from whatever we're doing in August, what an autumn awaits. But uh, anyway, look, I'm going to stop now. Uh, quite a lot going on here in Edinburgh. Thank you so much for listening. Whatever you're doing, have a great time. Uh, make the most of these days because September onwards. Well, how does Sue put it? What a time of political strangeness. Uh, I think it might even feel weirder, more wild and quite dangerous in some respects. So we've got to get together to make sense of it all. Thanks so much. See some of you in Edinburgh in the coming few days or Beyond Borders and then back in London at King's Place, hopefully, and elsewhere. Uh, anyway, take care. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.